You're listening to a Weeby Geeks Network podcast. Another world. Another time. In the age of wonder. There was once a dream. You could only whisper it. Anything more than a whisper, and it would vanish. A battle between good and evil. You don't know the power of the dark side. Or shall I find a new adversary so close to my own level? Try the local sewer. You know of the rebellion against the Empire? The Avengers, Earth's mightiest heroes. Peace means having a bigger stick than the other guy. One of these days, I'm going to have a stick of my own. I'm Groot. Welcome to the Neverland Podcast. The podcast for lovers of Disney, Pixar, Marvel, and Star Wars. I'm glad you're here to tell us these things. Please welcome your host, Jeremy. I thought he'd be taller. Yeah, I can fly. All it takes is faith and trust. Well, if it isn't the Star Spangled Man with a plan, what is your plan today? Up to Neverland! <laughs> Take your pixie out of your pockets, Neverlanders, and sprinkle some of that pixie dust around. Grab your happiest thought, well, think your happiest thought, and let's fly away to Neverland. And I have, of course, your spider pan. I am Jeremy, and I am here, of course, to lead the way to Neverland, and we're going to have some spidey fun today, because, you know, I am the spider pan here of Neverland. Obviously, I'm a big Spider-Man fan, and of course, we have a new Spider-Man film out there in the theaters, which I will have a review of, but I will put it at the end of the show because I will probably spoil a few things because I do have a few things to discuss about the movie. Uh, We're also going to have a nice discussion about some of the characters in Spider-Man's world that maybe you're not that familiar with some of the characters and, well, maybe you are, and I thought it would be fun to go over these. I am, however, flying solo to Neverland except for you're coming with me uh, because Eric wasn't able to join me today, but hopefully he'll be along next week. But let's get rolling right into some interesting theme park news. Spanning the Disney and Geek Universe to bring you the best in comics, toys, movies, and entertainment. This is news from around Neverland. Now, D23 is coming up, actually, this week, and I really wish I was going to be able to go, but I won't be able to go. But if you are going to be there, definitely, of course, you uh, the Disney Dream Store is going to be a place you want to check out, and I don't know if you'll be able to get in there. I have heard from Tim Nidell of Saturday Morning Rewind that it can be a challenge to get into this store, uh, but of course, this is going to run on at the Anaheim Convention Center from July 14th through the 16th. So, I mean, it's, it's coming up. You know, it's, this is next weekend. Uh, yeah, starting Friday, Friday through Sunday. And uh, I, there's a few things that were on the Disney Parks blog, a few items, some bits of jewelry that are really kind of neat. Uh, one of this is, it's kind of a Mickey head. That's a key, but the, the um, I don't know what you would call it, the, like the teeth of the, the key, you know what I mean, is actually a D23. And it looks very jewel-encrusted. I don't expect it has, like, real diamonds on it. Uh, but uh, this is all from Clay Chaffin, who's a merchandise product developer for the jewelry, and uh, he gave a bit of an inside scoop on the blog. And he says, We are thrilled to be part of the Disney Dream Store as it gives us an opportunity to offer elegant and stylish jewelry to our most enthusiastic Disney fans. Guests will find jewelry by Alex and Annie, 
Chris Liu, and Rebecca Hook. We will have two timepieces by Bolova. Some of these items will be available only to D23 Gold members, making them wonderful reminders of this ultimate Disney fan event. Uh, and I don't know who all has designed what, but there's a really cool design for uh, the Walt Disney World castle with a 23 and kind of a gold. The rest of it looks silver. And... Golly, I don't know how it's it kind of like ivy spirals are kind of filling the interior of the castle, which also appears to be a necklace like that key was. Looks like a necklace. All this looks like they're probably necklaces. There is also some variation of the Walt Disney World castle with uh, blue blue jewels. One that kind of looks kind of a purple jewels, and they have kind of a Mickey head uh, in the middle. That's where it's like a cutout. There's also a really neat Tinker Bell. Also, there are some bags. And they have some, uh, well, uh, patches on there. That would be the word uh, for, like, Star Tours, uh, the Epcot, uh, Pirates of the Caribbean, uh, Space Mountain, and all these different patches. Now, I don't know if the patches are already on the bags or you're buying the patches separately uh, with these bags. There's also some purses with Jack Skellington. Uh, looks like there's a phone bag of some of them, sort of sorts. Uh, I, uh, it's, or I guess they're calling it a wristlet. Uh, but it looks like you could put your phone in it from the look of the thing. Uh, but anyways, these are really kind of neat. And if you're going to D23, I'm sure you're going to be interested in picking them up. Uh, also, uh, in some sadder news this week, we have heard of the passing of Joan Lee, wife of Stan Lee. Now, uh, of course, Lee is not his real last name. He's, you know, took it as a professional name. But we owe her a debt, uh, almost as much as we do Stan Lee. And for, she was a support, and she was... You know, they were married for over 70 years. I mean, that's a good long life together. But when Stan was being told, and he, he was he was saying, hey, you know, uh, I think we need to have more characters, you know, more about character in the books we're writing. He wanted to write more and develop more characters and give them more personality than what previously had been seen in books. And he was told, no, you can't do that. And he was creating the Fantastic Four at the time. And Joan Lee is the one that told him, you've really got nothing to lose because... Either you're going to be unhappy and just leave, or you're going to get fired. So just write the story as you want it to, to be told, and the characters you want. And so that, of course, was the beginning of the Fantastic Four, and it ended up being a big seller. So suddenly they weren't questioning Stan Lee so much anymore, and they're allowing him to do exactly as he wanted to do. Then, of course, began you know successful launches of the Hulk and the X-Men and Spider-Man all these characters that uh, he did later really we can uh, attribute that to Joan Lee telling Stan to just write things the way he wanted also in some uh, kind of sad news I guess for the San Diego Comic Con Mile High Comics the largest comic book store in the United States I don't know if that's changed but they that's what they purported that they are the longest one uh, they're not going to be at San Diego Comic Con International this is the first time that they've missed it since 1972. And owner Chuck Rosansky has been exhibiting at the convention since 1973 when it was known as San Diego's West Coast Comic Convention. But he says there's been poor foot traffic, poor management needs, uh, and really things just not going very well. Uh, and he says, to answer the numerous questions that we have been receiving of late for the first time in 44 years, we will not be exhibiting in this year's San Diego Comic-Con. I wish that this decision could have been made otherwise, but circumstances beyond our control made our further participation impossible. Now, this store has been in existence since 1969 in Colorado Springs, Colorado. Eric got a chance to visit it while he was at the Denver Comic-Con, helping out uh, Adrian Paul, uh, Adrian Paul, Adrian Rob uh, with uh, 
his, you know, his booth there, Adrian Rapp, you'll probably be familiar with. We've mentioned him before. Uh, he's currently working on some underdog comics. Uh, he's also worked with Avalanche, doing uh, storyboards and stuff like that. But um, I guess, yeah, this is going to be a big hit. And I heard rumors that they were thinking last year to not do it. And a lot of people have basically said that the Comic-Con International in San Diego really hasn't been about comics in a long time. It's more of a pop culture and movie type of thing. Uh, heck, when uh, when I saw that Twilight was there as a big thing, I was kind of wondering, it's like, is this losing focus of what it should be? Because uh, that's more, you know, I guess it has an audience, but it seemed more like a, well, more movie-based thing and not so much, you know, about the comic characters. And you could say, well, hey, well, these are supposed to be vampires, but, you know, Twilight vampires, that's, is that really vampires? <laughs> I don't know. So, yeah, I had to wonder if they weren't going off the rails a little bit when I saw, you know, they did a lot of focus on that a couple years ago. And then having an ABC television show about flight attendants uh, have a major section there in a, in a Comic-Con. It just seems weird, you know. I don't know, it just seemed like it didn't fit to me, and so I know a lot of people have said that it's, you know, San Diego Comic-Con is just not a Comic-Con anymore, and now with the recent kerfuffle of them trying to file a copyright on the name Comic-Con with Salt Lake Comic-Con, which is ridiculous. There's a Comic-Con in pretty much every major city in the United States, and it's called a Comic-Con Comic Convention. I mean, that's what it is. You know, so trying to say that you own that is a little silly, and, uh... I don't think it's going to hurt their attendance too much, but I think a lot of people are starting a little tired of, of the San Diego Comic-Con uh, becoming something other. Now, here's something else that's really cool. Tron is 35 years old, and they're going to be showing it at the El Capitan Theater. Uh, now, let me get you some information about the showtimes. Uh, it's going to be on August 10th at 7 p.m. Doors are going to open at 6.30 uh, and I, you can pre-order the tickets if you go to elcapitantheater.com and it's slash event. Uh, you know what? I'm going to put a link up for you in the show notes here. Uh, so go and check it out. You know, I'll make sure it's on the website. You know, go and check it out and get yourself a way to see it. And the cool thing is not only is it going to be Tron, but you're also going to see Tron Legacy all for the same price. And you can call 1-800-DISNEY-6 also to learn more. It's going to be on a Thursday night, one night only, August 10th, 2017. For 35 years of Tron, which is, well, let's just face it, pretty darn cool. I think 35 years ago, now, I know Tron's not everybody's cup of tea. It's almost a, a cult following for that movie. And it's in a way, they call it the granddaddy of CGI animated films, because really it's the first one that really relied on a lot of early CGI and, of course, they said that in the Academy, they said that you're cheating, so they didn't give it an Oscar for the tremendous effects, which is completely different now when they use a good some CGI effects and it looks realistic. They give you an Academy Award for it, but back in 1980s, you, uh, it didn't. And it, it kind of got some mixed reviews. I don't think my wife really has enjoyed the first one. I don't think she ever really liked uh, Legacy either. Uh, Legacy I did see in the theater in 3D. I didn't. I never saw the original Tron in theaters, but uh, it was one of the times where the game was very popular before I ever got a chance to see the movie. And I've enjoyed the movie. It is It is fun. It is pretty cool. Uh, but I think it has a very specific audience uh, that really enjoys it. And the ones that enjoy it, I mean, we really think it's very just cool. And it's, you know, it's not like a cinematic masterpiece. It's just really kind of cool and just classic and uh, pretty neat. Something else outside of the world of Disney... Ready Player One, uh, which is an Ernest Cline book that is now being adapted into a film and directed by Steven Spielberg. It's going to be scored by Alvin 
Alan Silvestri, which is pretty cool. Now, you're probably wondering, Steven Spielberg, why isn't he using John Williams? Well, John Williams is busy working on another film and just didn't have time, but Alan Silvestri is a heck of a composer, and so it'll be very interesting to hear what he puts with the film. Now, for the, if you're not familiar with Ready Player One, uh, well, go listen to Techno Retro Dads. They bring it up a lot. But this is a, a, a futuristic dystopia where everybody kind of lives in a virtual world because the real world is just that bad. And inside of this world is this game world that everybody can live in, and there's basically a treasure hunt for this one guy who basically created the virtual world. He left you know, his entire fortune to whoever can solve all these puzzles. And that's the basic premise. I, I won't get in too far there because I don't want to spoil anything because uh, it's a pretty neat uh, book and has a lot of 80s references, which uh, I'm sure they won't be able to use quite all of them uh, because there's a lot of film references, and at one point... They go through the entire film of war games and they have to act it out. And so there's clips from war games I'm sure you're probably not going to be able to use, but maybe they did work out something. I don't know. There's a lot of neat stuff. A lot of old classic games like Pac-Man are, are brought up to the forefront. So, you know, if you're around my age, you're probably going to enjoy this film. You'll probably enjoy the book as well. Now, here's something else. Randall Park, you've seen him on Off the or Fresh Off the Boat, I believe is the show. I haven't ever watched it. It uh, looks funny, but I just never watched it. Uh, but he's going to play S.H.I.E.L.D. agent Jimmy Woo in the Ant-Man and the Wasp film. Uh, now, I'm not familiar if this is a character that we're going to be familiar with in the you know Marvel Universe normal, or if this is just for Cinematic Universe, kind of like Agent Coulson was, became popular, we liked the character. So, I mean, they can, they can create new S.H.I.E.L.D. agents. There's a whole realm of possibility in there. So, I don't know if this is a regular Marvel character or a character they've created. Either way, you know, we've got some new casting for Ant-Man and the Wasp. Speaking of casting news, Erica Durant, you might know her as Lois Lane from the Smallville series. She is returning into Superman's world, but as Supergirl's mother. She's replacing Laura Benanti. I don't know if I'm saying her name right. It looks like Benanti. Uh, she's got some other commitments with like a, a, a play in New York, I believe something on Broadway. And so she's not going to be able to come back and reprise her role as Supergirl's mother. So Erica Durant is taking that role, which is kind of neat. Uh, but you know, I, I quit watching it. I, I didn't like it this season. I don't. I don't think it was as fun as it was the first season. It just. It seems to have lost a step. Uh, so I didn't enjoy it. And I, I. I didn't get through half the season of Supergirl this year, unfortunately. Oh, but here's some cool news. Daniel Craig has went ahead and decided to come and be James Bond again in the 25th film in this franchise. Not sure exactly what made him change his mind, but it might have been that there were a lot of people who were willing to take the role, including Idris Elba. I'm, I'm probably getting his name wrong, but I, that would have been cool. I would have enjoyed him. Uh, Idris Elba, of course, you'll know him from the Thor movies as guarding the Rainbow Bridge of Asgard there. Uh, and a lot of other films. I mean, he's a very cool actor. I would like to have seen him as a James Bond. It would have been different. And it might have actually fed into the idea that the name of James Bond in the films, at least, is just a code name, and that's why you've had multiple different actors throughout the years playing that character, uh, because this would be the first black man to play uh, the role, which, you know, would have been different, but he might have been really cool. So I'd still like to maybe see that happen someday, just to kind of, you know, because he's kind of a cool actor. He's got, you know, a good presence. I would like to see him as a James Bond. I, I think I would enjoy that. Uh, but now I'd like to move on to uh, something in the trailer park. Mama, another gator got in the house. Another gator? Give me that sugar. Come here. Get him, Mama. Get that gator. The Neverland trailer park. Now this uh, is a little different. I don't know that this is going to be like a family-friendly type of movie or not. It is a Stephen King book that has been adapted to movie. But speaking of Idris Elba, he is in it. 
And I saw a trailer for this in front of Spider-Man Homecoming, and it looked pretty exciting. So I wanted to share this with you and, uh, and hope maybe, you know, it's a PG-13, so maybe we can talk about it later. Uh, if it's an R, unfortunately, we won't talk about it on the show, but I might write something on it because I'll, I'll probably go and check it out because it looked really, really neat. But here it is. Here's a teaser for Stephen King's The Dark Tower. For thousands of generations, the gunslingers were knights. Want to protect us from the coming of the dark. These visions, as you call them. What do you see? I see a tower. A man in black. And the gunslinger. They're just dreams. They're not real, Jake. There's another world out there. Who are you? It's you. You're a gunslinger, right? There are no gunslingers. Not anymore. Why does the man in black want to destroy the tower? The tower protects both our worlds. If it falls, hell will be unleashed. He's like the devil, isn't he? No, he's worse. You can't stop what's coming. Death always wins. Your world might be gone, but mine isn't. You let that tower fall, billions of people die. When I have guns and bullets in your world, you're gonna like Earth a lot. All right, let's go. the darkness did you tell the kid whoever walks with you dies by my hand i will kill him for both of us i do not aim at my hand he who aims with his hand has forgotten the face of his father i aim at my eye i do not shoot with my hand i shoot with my mind Do not kill with my gun. I kill with my heart. And now it's time for the first of two movie reviews that we will have on the show today. My wife, while I went to go see Spider-Man Homecoming, went to go see Despicable Me 3, which I haven't seen Despicable Me 2. I haven't really covered this film much, but I thought you might want to hear how what somebody at least thought of the movie. So uh, here's her review of Despicable Me 3. There'll be spectacle, there'll be fantasy, there'll be daring do and stuff like you would never see. Hey, a movie. Yeah, we're gonna be a movie. Starring everybody and me. Boy, I wish I were you people seeing this for the first time. Kermit, I got a great picture of the chicken. Oh, good. Okay, so I went to go see Despicable Me 3 this weekend. And um, as far as sequels go, it's pretty good. You know, I still think Despicable Me, the first one, was the best one. So what we find in this particular movie, we've got Gru, 
who we find he and his uh, and Lucy, his wife, have, they've lost their job at the AVL, the Anti-Villain League. And from there, we also discover that his minions want him to return to crime. He is very reluctant to do that. And so that creates a little bit of a little conflict. And so they, we see the minions going off and having a, a different kind of different story arc because they want they want to go back to crime. And then we also find out that Gru has a long lost twin brother who also wants him to return to crime. And so all of this, he's very reluctant to. We also have his little girl that's out to look for unicorns. And there's some cute things that happen in there with that. We do have a kind of an arch villain that has emerged in in the storyline. And to be really honest, that was the one thing that I found the most annoying about the uh, movie was this villain. The villain to me was very annoying. I don't know if that was by design, probably, you know, potentially, but he really is. I mean, that's probably the worst thing about the movie is this, the, the villain is so very annoying. And it probably is because he is like one of these Hollywood children that has, thinks they should be a superstar all the time. That's kind of his personality. And I, and I, I guess just maybe I have a low tolerance for, for bratty kids or adults that have been bratty kids. Maybe that's where it is, has come from. But overall, this is a pretty good movie. You know, it, it's probably would be funnier for the younger kids. And if you grew up in the eighties, you might be able to appreciate a lot of the eighties references, especially with the bad guy, because that's kind of when he was all the, all the rage in Hollywood. And so anyway, you said it overall is pretty good. This is not, you know, uh, a very like classic kind of movie, you know, I mean, the kids will probably pop it in and watch it, you know, uh, over and over again, kind of like with the other Despicable Me movies, but it's, it's pretty fun. Go and, you know, just kind of enjoy. Let's take a ride at a Disney park. Let's take a ride right now. Oh, oh. Checking on board systems. Roger, on board, now verify. Hello? This is Jonah Jameson, Roger, over. Is this thing on? Listen, Scoop, crime reports are coming in from all over the city and I'm starting to get worried. Did you see that? The spider signal! With Spider-Man nearby, trouble can't be far away. And you know what trouble means. Headlines! National coverage! So don't screw this up! I mean, uh, good luck. Man, you shouldn't be out here. Doc Ock almost. This could be the most dangerous night of my life. And yours. Be careful. Nice shades. Is that Spider-Man? No good. And red leotard. And with my anti-gravity cabin, even Spider-Man won't be able to stop me. You mean stop us? Yes, of course. Hey, what's going on? What was that? Intruder! If you think you're getting out of here, you're in for it.
us for being careful. Just get back to the bugle and... Uh-oh. See about getting Mr. Jameson down. See you later. To Disney and beyond. All right. I thought after seeing the film that uh, it would be interesting to talk about some of the characters within Spidey's world, or at least Peter Parker's world. Because one thing about Spider-Man, it is, it's always been more about Peter Parker, who lives a life as Spider-Man. Uh, see, a lot of the DC Universe, you, you can look at Superman and Batman as people who are, their real identity is Superman and Batman, and they have to kind of disguise themselves as Bruce Wayne and Clark Kent. That's, that's the way that they look at those characters. Peter Parker was definitely one of those early characters that he was a normal guy who's trying to balance his life with being Spider-Man because of that responsibility he feels after, you know, failing responsibility for his uncle. You know the story. So he, it's always been about Peter Parker and his world and how, you know, keeping a balance between that and his life as Spider-Man. Um, so I thought getting into Peter Parker's life a little bit would be interesting. And so I dug around some information on some of the characters that, uh, that fill in his life. First one I'm going to talk about is Eugene Flash Thompson. Of course, now I'm going to deal mainly in Earth-616 for all of you Marvel Comics readers. That is the main Marvel world that we are familiar with. Now, this is a former classmate of Peter Parker. 
grew up in Forest Hills, Queens, lived just actually a few blocks away from Peter, uh, with his father Harrison Thompson, who was a police officer with the NYPD, and his mother Rosie Thompson, and even a little sister named Jessie. Now, he was actually abused by his alcoholic father, which actually led to Flash's own violent, bullying nature. Now, he was an athlete. Uh, he, there's even, you know, he was mainly the football star. I believe he was supposed to be in the quarterback, you know, and that's that's kind of a thing. That's, that's all. He's Midtown High star quarterback. You know, he was fast on the football field, which is why they nicknamed him Flash, because uh, his real name is Eugene, but you don't dare want to call him Eugene. Uh, and he has friends like, you know, Brian Tiny McKeever, Jason Ionello, Seymour O'Reilly, Charlie, and of course, uh, Sally Avril and Liz Allen were a couple of his female admirers. And he kind of had a thing with Liz Allen, you know, for, you know, had a thing for her. You know, that was his girl. You didn't mess with her, you know, that sort of a thing. And in the early comics, you see a lot of uh, adventures where, you know, he referred to Peter as Puny Parker all the time. There's even this uh, bit of a boxing match, though, that, they, that Peter... Uh, where he, Peter evades Flash's punches and then actually knocked him out in a single punch, but it was passed off as an accident because you know it was it, it was moved on. There was Flash having it. There's some stuff with this computer called the Living Brain. It was a whole different type of thing. Uh, but yeah, F- Flash stopped his physical abuse about that time, but he continues to taunt Peter. Now the nifty thing is later on, much later on, you know, around university, you know, uh, well, Flash Thompson actually had went into the military. And, you know, got a different kind of personality. Get a good get a, get a upload. You know, you got changed. And when, you know, because Flash did go to college for a little bit. And he kind of made friends with Peter and Gwen. And, you know, Gwen Stacy had shown up by this time. And, you know, Flash had went to the military. And they were, they were getting along. They were friends. And things were going pretty good for a good long time. Uh, now, and some more recent things. Uh, they've done some interesting things with Flash Thompson where... Uh, in the Gulf War here recently, he actually lost the use of his legs, actually in a very heroic way, saving his unit. It was a great story. I really enjoyed it. And after that time, he was actually even bonded with the Venom symbiote for a while and was known as Agent Venom, had his own book, and even at one point was working with the Guardians of the Galaxy as Agent Venom. That has since changed. Uh, I don't know what all happened after that. I, you know, I haven't really kept up on things more recently, but he's no longer bonded with the uh, the cinnamon the, the symbiote the cinnamon wow uh but yeah that is flash thompson the main thing that you have to have about him is he is a football star you know he's an athlete and he's a bully uh, at the time in high school and that's kind of what i want you to keep in mind of what flash thompson should be like but now let's move on to another character by the name of elizabeth betty brant now this is the first time you see her in the comics. She's already working at the Daily Bugle. She is basically, as you saw her in the, in the Sam Raimi films, she's a secretary for J. Jonah Jameson, and she can kind of match him and put up with him. It's a, it's an amazing type of thing, that what she can tolerate. It's impressive. But she actually had dropped out of high school in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and, and because she was taking care of her ailing mother. Uh, so she didn't get to finish high school, and she didn't even go to high school in New York. She came from Philadelphia, took the job, uh, that actually, um, she was actually trying to help pay her, you know, her brother uh, had some gambling debts and he was trying to take care of that, her mother's medical bills, and she actually took over the job uh, for, I think, another relative, if I remember correctly. But, uh, so she's been working there from a very young age, and she's actually about Peter's age, which can be confusing to some people when uh, when Peter shows up at the Daily Bugle and he's got this attraction to Betty Brandt, there's people thinking, oh, but wouldn't, shouldn't she be in her 20s or something? This is kind of weird because he's like 15. No, she was actually about the same age. 
So and she just, you know, like I said, had dropped out of high school pretty young to go and work at that job. Uh, she later, though, I met up with another character, Ned Leeds. She had kind of a complicated past uh, that that Peter did wind up dealing with as Spider-Man, uh, with some threats to her brother, that kind of thing. But she did end up eventually. They kind of went out with Peter for a little bit. It didn't really work that well because Peter actually colored a little bit more for Liz Allen over in class, and so it didn't quite work. But then she meets up with this uh, employee reporter, Ned Leeds, at the Daily Bugle. And uh, though he left for Europe, they remained in contact. They wrote letters back and forth, and they began dating when uh, when he came back. And then Ned Leeds proposed to Betty. Betty, And although, I guess, you know, Betty still kind of had a thing for Peter. But, you know, Peter kind of kept away, so she went and went, did go and actually accept the marriage proposal. And then, of course, uh, J. Jonah Jameson throws in a big engagement party, and the wedding soon followed. Uh, although, during the wedding day, a, a criminal named Mirage showed up and robbed all the guests. So... Fortunately, Spider-Man intervened and Mirage was captured. And uh, Mary Jean Watson actually served as Betty's maid of honor. Now, one thing that was very, very interesting, and I want to get into a little bit of Ned Leeds because we're talking about Ned as well. Uh, he had some interesting stories, and you know, why don't I go ahead and jump that. Uh, but Ned's investigative reporting actually got him in, in, in a bit of trouble with the marriage. Uh, because following Leeds on a new villain who had styled himself as the Green Goblin, who called himself the Hobgoblin, Leeds was actually captured and hypnotized to think that he was the Hobgoblin. And during this period, Betty turned over to her friend Flash Thompson, but he too was actually being framed by the real Hobgoblin, and in the process, Betty saw Ned dressed as the Hobgoblin, threatening Flash. Now, her mind was already kind of fragile and pushed over the edge at this point, and, and meanwhile, a mercenary named Jason McIndale asked the, a character called The Foreigner for information on who the Hobgoblin was and was given Leeds' name. When Ned followed an espionage story to Berlin under hypnosis, he dressed himself as the Hobgoblin and was assassinated by the foreigner's men. Mackendale, after thinking the original Hobgoblin was dead, would later adopt the identity of the Hobgoblin for himself. Now, here's the interesting thing. Um, I've got part of the story of Ned's death, and it seemed to have been connected with uh, some KGB and Russians. There's actually this uh, collection of comics I, I have. It's, it's in a race of graphic novel form, uh, form, and it's Wolverine versus Spider-Man. And it's a very interesting read, but uh, it, it does involve where Peter ha- went to take photos for the story that Ned was covering. And uh, Spider-Man kind of get him involved in Wolverine dealing with some stuff from, from an old friend of KGB and all this thing from his past. But he does come across Ned Leeds being murdered, and he thought it was connected with this KGB type of thing. Uh, turns out it was, and it had something to do with this other thing. Uh, but Jason McIndale, although, does uh, become the Hobgoblin. Um, the original Hobgoblin was somebody who actually found the Green Goblin's stash of weaponry. He was just like a, a petty thief who finds the weaponry and... And grabbed all the stuff. And the Hobgoblin, there's been a lot of different Hobgoblins throughout the years. Um, that's a whole different story. I don't know if they'll ever put a Hobgoblin in the films because it's too similar to the Green Goblin. Um, so I don't expect to have it in, uh, pop up in a film. But in the 90s animated series, you actually got a Hobgoblin. And it was Jason McIndale, voiced by Mark Hamill, before you ever got a Green Goblin. Uh, which, that's just kind of an interesting bit of information. But anyways, I had mentioned Liz Allen. Let's go ahead and jump and talk about Liz Allen. So... This is a blonde-headed girl that was a classmate of Peter Parker's. Now, you will note that that has definitely changed in the, the spectacular Spider-Man animated series. It was the first time I saw them. They had her as a brunette character, and she's been played by a brunette uh, even in this film, and even mixed, which I guess was supposed to throw us off some things in this new film. Uh, but I don't, I don't know what their intention was. I, we'll, we'll talk about that later. But, you know, Peter Parker kind of had a crush on her. 
Uh, but uh, there was a bit of a triangle because not only did Peter Parker have a crush on her, but Flash Thompson considered her to be his girl. And that just actually made a little bit more uh, of, a, of a problem for, you know, Flash being a problem for Peter. Just made it a bit more complicated between the, uh, the Flash and Peter relationship. Uh, the interesting thing is, at one point, she develops a crush on Spider-Man, and she blew off Flash and Peter because she thought the costume hero was going to call her. Uh, but she starts to actually admire Peter's intelligence and got some bit of an affection for the former quote-unquote bookworm that Peter Parker was also referred to as. And actually, Peter had, had kind of waned his interest because he was starting to be interested in Betty Brant and started to date there. But of course, you know, it, it, you know, his feelings for Liz kind of went up a little bit. You know, so it kind of went around went different things. But uh, Liz actually ended up uh, dating and marrying Harry Osborne, which she met actually at Betty Brant's wedding to Ned Leeds. And of course, she became Liz Allen Osborne. They had a son, Normie Osborne. However, this really turns tragic because Harry kind of started following the, the footsteps of his father. Uh, and it was really some creepy stuff going on with that, you know, because, you know, Harry had been having been a friend of Peter Parker. And this has been played out in a few films in different ways. Uh, but boy, if they really dove into just how creepy it was in the comics. And they, they did it in the 90s series. It really, uh, they, they, they borrowed directly from the comics of some of the things that Harry did during uh, uh, the 30-year anniversary uh, of, of, of Spider-Man, actually, in the comics, if you get a chance to pick up some of those. You know, there was four books running at the time, and I can't remember which specific book had some of the story with Harry, but, oh my goodness, it is very creepy stuff, because Harry has a p potential to cause a lot of damage to Peter's personal life, especially being family friends, but, you know, Harry had kind of a journey into madness and even used some of the goblin drug on him and himself and all kinds of different stuff, and it's a very, very scary story, but uh, little Normie, and they've used him a lot, He's a very brilliant young boy, but he seems like a sinister little boy. And so you don't know exactly what's going on. And Liz will do anything uh, to help out her son because that is her son. And so you got to be careful with Liz here these days because, uh, you know, you never know what she's going to do with, uh, to help out her little son, Normie. And Normie is uh, a little bit of a loose cannon. Now, uh, another character, Michelle Gonzalez, which has to be the inspiration for the character of Michelle in the film, because uh, I can't think of any other Michelles that have ever been in his life, and uh, so and she has some of the behavior things of being a bit of a nemesis, but yet almost friendly, but yet more of a nemesis, and always kind of ribbing Peter. Uh, she's actually the sister of Vincent Gonzalez, who was a police officer that he actually was involved with the Spider Tracer Killer conspiracy, and uh, Spider-Man helped manage to wrap that up, got himself out of trouble because everybody, you know, with Spider-Tracers being found on murder victims, everybody thought Spider-Man was up to it. But, of course, Spider-Man figures out the whole thing and Vincent goes to jail. And turns out Vincent was Peter Parker's roommate at the time. This, of course, is after the one new, uh, brand new day storyline where Mephisto wipes out the whole marriage between Mary Jane and Peter like it never happened. And then they just later sort of retconned that, oh, well, they lived together during all this time, but they weren't married. And, yeah, that was the beginning of oh, downfall for some of us. It just got silly. So, the funny thing is, uh, they, they they really didn't get along. Because she was the one, she knew that she was putting up more money for the apartment than Peter was. So she kind of was boss around the apartment. And actually, uh, Peter went ahead and just invited her to go to the wedding of Aunt May and J. Jonah Jameson's uncle. Or, you know, J. Not, not the J dot, but J. J-A-Y. So, actually, made him and JJ, uh, Daily Bugle publisher, 
family, which was kind of fun. They were like cousins. It was really funny. But uh, Peter accidentally got drunk, and so did uh, then Michelle. And, well, they had a one-night stand, which kind of made it a complication. Later on, in a very interesting story, the chameleon uh, took over Peter Parker's life, trying to get close to J. Jonah Jameson, who was from publisher to Daily Bugle to mayor of New York. He was basically on an assassination job, and he thought, well, Peter could get close to him, and so he actually messed up the relationship between Peter and Michelle at that time as well. Made life really complicated. But eventually, though, Michelle Gonzalez did move back to Chicago, and after telling Peter that, you know, he wasn't really wasn't as bad a guy as she had thought him to be. She wasn't really that great a character. She was I don't know if they had intended to, thought that she could end up being a love interest or something, but I don't... I don't I don't think anybody really liked the character. I think that's why they sent her off. Because she was not a great character. She was kind of a nemesis around the place. And uh, just really, I don't know. I don't think people really liked her. So to see her represented in a film was surprising. But now let's talk about Adrian Toomes. Now his parents died actually in his early years. And he was raised by his older brother Marcus. And he was really intelligent and, um, you know, Barkers became a paraplegic after a motorcycle incident, and, well, Adrian went to look after him. Adrian Toomes becomes an electrical engineer and a bit of an adventurer, goes in with a business partner named Gregory Bessman and started Bessman and Toomes, which was a small electronics firm, and that's where Toomes first develops an electromagnetic harness that actually could allow its wearer to fly. However, Toomes finds out that Bessman is embezzling money from the company, and so Toomes confronts Bessman and find out the exposure to the harpness actually increased his strength. So, Bessman fired Toomes for attacking him and assumed full control of the company. So, Toomes kind of retires. He's an older fella, you know, and now at this point goes to a farm in Staten Island, continues to work on his harpness, and, of course, Bessman starts selling, you know, some of the stuff. Uh, he sells the company, and so he basically all the money on the company that Toomes really should have a right to, you know, <laughs> he gets none. So Toomes becomes the vulture, and he's, he's developed, got wings now so he can control where he flies with his suit, and took his money back. But although who becomes a full-time costume criminal in the process. So he does have sort of that working man who uh, gets screwed over and decides to take things into a more criminal direction. And he now has contended, actually, with Spider-Man many times. Uh, did find out at one point that his flying harness did give him cancer at one point. It was slowly killing him. And I've actually got some comics where I thought were very interesting. There's a lot of people who find the Vulture to not be an interesting character, but I've got some good stories with him uh, where he was very desperate to kill Spider-Man. You know, has his last final act before he was going to die of cancer. But they have found ways to bring Adrian Toomes back, and he has passed on his Vulture technology to uh, to some others that kind of work for him and stuff like that. So he had put together a new team, uh, done a lot of different things. So it was very, very interesting. Uh, all, you know, there's been a lot of different things that we're being rejuvenated into a, a young version of himself by, you know, touching, getting these, like, gloves. And there's a story called Life Theft where he takes Peter Parker's, um, well, Spider-Man's, you know, so he doesn't recognize him as Peter Parker anyway. But, yeah, big complicated. He takes his, his strength and youth and everything for a while. Uh, a lot of just interesting things have gone on. But um, there is actually a new group of uh, flying thieves going around, and they are using some uh, vulture technology. And, uh, you know, the Vulture has also been part of the Sinister Six a couple of times. You know, he's worked with some of the best of the Spidey villains. So, I mean, he's really, you know, a, a big deal. And so having him in a film is actually a very, very cool. Now, a lesser-known character, the Tinkerer. 
Now, and very little is actually known about his criminal career, but uh, he actually encountered Spider-Man early in the web spinner's career, actually appeared to be the leader of an alien task force that was attempting to control the world, and Spider-Man, of course, stops the quote-unquote invasion and found out it was fake and got the tinkerer in a rubber mask who actually got away. Years later, Spider-Man learns that the Tinkerer is just this ordinary guy who's really talented for anything mechanical and invention. And actually, this is where he finds out that his aliens were really just movie stuntmen in costumes. They were doing the duty work. But he's invented armor and weapons for the Beetle, uh, the Big Wheel, Hobgoblin, uh, well, Jason McIndale, and uh, the Constrictor. Uh, He actually has been severely injured by the Punisher during the Civil War. uh, But he's recovered and went back to work. But he has been arrested. Now, Rick Mason, his son, has struck a bargain with Norman Osborn to have the Tinkerer released upon completion of a single mission. Osborn has agreed to this and kept his word after Mason delivered on his end. Now, in here, some recent comics in a new spectacular Peter Parker uh, book, they have a brother of the Tinkerer. And, of course, the Tinkerer's real name is Phineas Mason. When you watch Spider-Man Homecoming, you'll only hear him referred to as Mason. Now, he, you know, this brother, of course, that he has, he basically looks like Andre the Giant. He's super tall. You'll see in some more recent comics, which, you know, I'm sure we'll see a lot more. But he's, his brother seems to be more uh, trying to help the heroes out with some of their technology. Alrighty, the last character I want to get into is Herman Schultz, the Shocker. Now, I did talk about him actually a little bit. I mentioned, uh, was it last week or a couple of weeks ago, that the very first Amazing Spider-Man issue I ever bought actually featured the Shocker as the main villain of that book. Now, Herman Schultz, he's a career criminal, he, and he's been in prison a lot, uh, mainly for robbery. But he made himself a battle suit and created these gauntlets, and basically the suit he's wearing is kind of, it's like a padding, it protects him from the gauntlets, but it creates this vibration that's like a shock. And so he, you know, basically became a bit of a supervillain because he was clever enough to create these things. Uh, so he, he built these things and has been known as a shocker. He's been a member of the Masters of Evil, has fought Spider-Man a lot, and he's actually one of the more difficult opponents. He has been uh, amongst the lethal foes of Spider-Man, and actually has been featured in a few video games. If you played the video game based on the first Spider-Man film from Sam Raimi, you will have to contend with him as your first major villain, other than the guy who uh, kills Uncle Ben. When you get to your first supervillain, it's the Shocker, and that really well done in there. Also, uh, Spider-Man 2, Enter Electro from the original PlayStation. You'll have a very difficult with a Shocker in there, where you've actually got to get him to blast some boxes down onto himself, because you can't just go and slug it out with him, which I didn't think was right, because, you know, there's no reason that you can't slug it out with uh, the Shocker, if you can get in close past his blasts. So, he's a very interesting character, actually very, very clever. And for all I know, there's only ever been one Shocker, but in the film you'll find two Shockers. But the second Shocker is Herman Schultz in the film. Alrighty, but that is everything I have to say about some of the characters you're going to come across in Spider-Man Homecoming uh, when you see the film. And that, of course, now I've told you what they're like in the comics. And I've done that for good reason. So let's go ahead and toss into our review of Spider-Man Homecoming. Here we go. Good evening, Peter. Oh. You have 576 possible web shooter combinations. That is awesome. I can keep that suit? Yeah, doesn't fit me. So when's our next retreat? What, next mission? We'll call you, all right? That's not a hug. I'm just grabbing the door for you. We're not there yet. All right, good, good luck out there. Hey, Peter, you coming tonight? I can't tonight. I got the Stark internship. What's up, guys? 
Mr. Stark, here's my report for tonight. I stopped the Grand Theft Bicycle. Hey, could you do me a favor? Hold on to that. Is this anybody's bike? Oh, I helped this old lady and she bought me a churro, so that was nice. I just feel like I could be doing more. Wait a minute. You guys aren't the real Avengers. Hulk gives it away. New move I'm working on. Not bad. Oh. Oh, God, this feels so strange. Oh. These weapons are crazy dangerous. Listen, Peter, there are people who handle this sort of thing. Can't you just be a friendly neighborhood Spider-Man? Parachute. The world's changing, boys. It's time we change, too. This is my chance to prove myself. We have a Spanish quiz. You gotta get better at this part of the job. I don't understand. Yeah. Oh. I'm intimidating. Oh, hey, yes. My friends are up there. What are you hiding, Peter? I'm just kidding, I don't care. Bye. There's a ton of other subsystems in here, but they're all disabled by the training wheels protocol. I'm sick of Mr. Stark treating me like a kid. But you are a kid. Yeah, a kid who can stop a bus with his bare hands. Okay. So overall, I would say this is a pretty good movie in general senses. I mean, it is very funny. This was pretty much a teen comedy in a lot of ways. And it is very funny. has a lot of great funny moments. You'll laugh through it. It has some interesting action. Uh, and the characters are at least entertaining, although a bit one-sided. But someone has pointed out to me, well, these characters in the comics are a little one-sided. And that's, I guess, true. But the one side of these characters in the comics is very different from the one side you're going to find in the film. Uh, so my light, spoiler-free review is to say, overall, as a film, it is pretty good. It is kind of formulaic for the Marvel Cinematic Universe, so if you're kind of getting tired of the formula, I guess you might not like it so much. Uh, but uh, as a film, it's good. Uh, it does have some problems. There is a... You know, it just seems to randomly come up where you, you know Peter Parker seems very confident in his ability to be able to join the Avengers. He just feels he needs to prove himself. And then suddenly we have a twist... Where he, you know, he's messed up a lot. He's got a lot of failures. He's not very good at the web slinging at this point. We see him mess up a lot, especially trying to thring, swing through suburbs. There's one point is a little ridiculous just for a joke. They have him fire a web up to nothing because he's out in the suburbs of New York. And I'm like, well, wouldn't he have seen that there was nothing there? But it's basically done as a joke. I mean, a lot of things were just done to be a joke. It's almost, I felt almost like they were making fun of Spider-Man more than making him the hero that he should be. You know, uh, and a lot of some of the comic writers, they'll do that with him. He'll be like the the comic relief, uh, even part of when he was part of the New Avengers. That's one of the things my buddy Philip once complained about. It's like Spider-Man just was there for comic relief, and some of his stuff just wasn't funny. And it's just like, oh, this isn't the character we love. This is this is a joke, because in you know in in the comics, basically Spider-Man makes his quips and jokes on the villains to kind of deal with the fact that he's in danger and to deal with the, his life. You know, because. <laughs> He's, he, he carries the weight of the, of the world on his shoulders. His responsibility that he feels a burden for is huge. And so he jokes and he quips as Spider-Man to kind of deal with his responsibility and uh, deal with the nervousness he might find at facing some of the foes he faces that are sometimes far more powerful than he is. And so he'll quip and joke and it takes them a bit off guard, kind of annoys them a little bit, and allows him to win. 
But when they, they that's this film, he really doesn't make a lot of quips. They just make being Spider-Man itself a joke. You know, uh, where sometimes, oh, everybody thinks it's awesome. Wow, you're guy, that guy on YouTube. Uh, a lot of times he's he's messing things up and he's making a fool of himself. And it's just like they, they've made him a clown. Uh, he, he just didn't seem like Spider-Man. But, you know, I, I could go with the fact that there could be a learning curve. Uh, we don't get a whole lot of his life as Peter Parker. They spent a lot more time with him as Spider-Man than as Peter Parker in this film. Maybe they wanted to get away from the Peter Parker life. But within Peter Parker's circle, Ned Leeds, you know, that reporter at the Daily Bugle, has become the, well, the signature fat comedic relief friend uh, to and sidekick a bit to Peter Parker. And he was very enjoyable. I did enjoy the character. I mean, it's it's a very different take on Ned Leeds, but it was it was an enjoyable take on Ned Leeds. Liz, which I don't think they ever gave her the name Liz Allen, but that's Liz, so you just kind of assume it's Liz Allen. She's pretty much the same character you'd expect for Liz Allen, although she's a senior to their sophomore age, so that was kind of weird they're not the same age. Um, but she is actually the team captain for the academic team there uh, within the school, and of course Peter Parker is a part of an academic team. That makes sense. You know, he's big into science, so you know him being part of the team is makes sense. Her leading it, sure, we can go with that. However, somebody on the team doesn't fit. Flash Thompson. Instead of being tall, athletic, and everything, and like the football star, he is actually shorter than Peter, and he's on the academic team. And as much as we get as a bully, is he's you know he's a bit of a jerk, and he kind of does you know make fun of Peter a lot. And there's a term he uses for Peter that I'm not going to say here because it's a family-friendly show, and I don't think it was appropriate actually for a Spider-Man film myself because I don't I don't think it should have been there. Uh, although yeah, I guess funny, and I guess teenagers talk this way, but you know there was a lot of kids in the audience, and I was. I was cringing for the parents that have little ears with them that were hearing some of the terms. And even there's some language in the film that I don't think is necessary uh, because, I mean, it's a Spider-Man film. And I don't think anyone's ever really cussed like this in a, in a Spider-Man film because kids love Spider-Man, you know. But, you know, Marvel Cinematic Universe state, it's, oh, you know, we can do, do some minor cussing. Who cares? But, I don't know, when little ears are in the theater like that, I, I don't know, it bugs me a little bit, you know. But maybe that's just me. Anyway, so Flash Thompson really is not... Flash Thompson. His one-sided, one-dimensional type of character where the bully football star is now the, you know, just jerk guy in the academic squad who just kind of makes fun of Peter. Never calls him Puny Parker because he has a different name for him that, like I said, I'm not going to say. Doesn't quite seem the right character. Now, Aunt May, who's supposed to be a bit elderly, and who's very doting, a bit of a worry wart, we get a little bit of that, but mainly we kept getting quips of like, oh, hey, your aunt is hot and single now. Oh, hey, hey. And there's, like, flirtatious comments basically made towards to Peter about his aunt, which is weird. And yeah, Marissa Tomei, yeah, she's pretty. And But I don't know, that's giving a completely different... I mean, this was not Aunt May. Although, although there's times in character she seems like Aunt May. But most of the time she seems like she's trying to be the cool mom. And that just doesn't fit Aunt May at all. This is a beloved character and they really got it wrong. And, you know, casting Marissa Tomei, I, I've had problems with that, I think, since the beginning. I've, I've, this is not the first time I've said something, that she just doesn't fit the role. Nothing wrong with the actress and she is a bit older than she was when she got started, and so she might be about the right age, but the way they wrote the character just doesn't seem right, and the way they presented the character. I, I think Sally Field actually was better. Uh, and I had my doubts about Sally Field, but I think Sally Field actually was a pretty good Aunt May. But uh, you're never going to top the original Aunt May there and the uh, the Sam Raimi films in my book. That, those were great. So overall, it's some of the characters I just I couldn't get into of being part of Spider-Man's world. They just didn't fit. Peter Parker seemed like a cross between Donatello and Michelangelo of the Ninja Turtles, where he was like, whoa, dude, that's cool. 
but maybe they're trying to make him more teenager. But Peter Parker is kind of a wallflower, you know, maybe a little bit of a loner. You know, he's a very shy kid. When he puts on the mask, it kind of changes. But I don't know that that came across very well with how they presented Peter Parker. So while some people are saying, oh, this is the best Peter Parker, well, he was an entertaining Peter Parker, but he wasn't quite the character of Peter Parker. It just, it just didn't fit for me. And like I said, this was an enjoyable film, and it's very funny, and most people are really going to enjoy it, and it's been making all kinds of money, but it just didn't feel like Spider-Man. And, okay, I'm going to get into some spoilers pretty quick, so if you're afraid of any spoilers, go ahead and jump ahead now while, before I start talking about Adrian Toomes. Uh, which I will say at first, Adrian Toomes, played by Michael Keaton, stole the show. He's fantastic because he's Michael Keaton. And he is presented as a guy who kind of gets screwed over by some big corporate thing because we do get a little a bit of, uh, um, I forgot the name of the group now. It's Tony Stark starts them, so he doesn't like Tony Stark, but they're a group basically to clean up after Avengers battle. And so Adrian Toomes' crew, you know, he spent a lot of money to be able to clean up after the Avengers' first battle in New York there. And he loses that job because this other group that is a Marvel staple comes in to actually clean things up. And so he's got issues with uh, with anyone higher than a station. And he really wants to take care of his family, but he chooses a criminal career to do it using some of the technology that they steal from Avengers. And his friend Mason, the Tinkerer, manages to make weapons and a flying harness. So they don't quite have Adrian Toomes as being the, the inventor, creative person he is, but it does give him a chance to have the Tinkerer in there so you get more weapons. These weapons, of course, get out on the street. Spider-Man knows somebody's got to deal with it, but he's being treated as if, no, no, you need to stick to smaller things. This is maybe too big for you. And so a lot of it seems to be Spider-Man trying to prove himself, but I guess it turns around by the end where Spider-Man needs to prove himself to himself, that he's more than something without that suit. But, but although that's an issue that even comes up until Tony Stark confronts him when he says, oh, but I, I'm nothing without this suit. It just seems like it's thrown in there. There's nothing at this point in the film to indicate that that's a problem for him. So I had a problem with that. Okay, but now I'm going to get into spoilers, so skip ahead. Okay, if you're still with me, then you've probably seen the film and you're not afraid of a spoiler or two. They did do something really neat that is from a comic, and it's a classic comic where at one point Spider-Man was being crushed under a building. There's water running down him, and he, he thinks he's he's can't do anything about it, and he finds the, the strength to lift this building stuff pretty much off of his head and save himself. They did this in the film, and I did appreciate that. They even had the water trickling down as the building is brought down to him. But another thing I had a problem with, uh, I, this is why I guess this was not Liz Allen, it must be Liz Toomes, because her father turns out to be Adrian Toomes, which seems to be a thing they just threw a twist in in order to have a character who could find out that Peter Parker is Spider-Man, to make it personal. Which, granted, in Spider-Man type of things, a lot of the villains, somehow or another, it ends up personal with whatever's going on. Somehow or another, it, they get to him personally. And so this did provide a way to get to him personally. It just seemed like, I don't know, cheap. It seemed a very cheap twist. It does make for some interesting scenes, though, where uh, Peter Parker knows exactly who Adrian Toomes is, but Adrian Toomes doesn't know at, Peter, at first that Peter Parker is Spider-Man, but he kind of figures it out in this car ride. But Liz Allen is, or, or sorry, not Liz Allen, but Liz, is sort of an afterthought at this point. I mean, her character really only seems to exist in the film to go to homecoming with Peter enough for Peter to run into Adrian Toomes there at home. She doesn't really have any more to it other than, you know, Spider-Man rescuing her from a from a colossal disaster on the Washington Monument. And so Adrian Toomes does feel like he owes a little bit of a debt to him. And that's important. Um, and I don't want to spoil the ending, though. If you if you stuck around, and I've already just spoiled something from you. There is a very cool thing at the ending. And it does help actually wrap up some things when you stick around in the first wave after credits. It does wrap up a loose end with uh, the knowing of his identity. So, I mean, it does work itself out. But I I didn't really care for messing with things and making Liz that 
that little bit of importance. Um, and then they got rid of her at the end of the movie. Oh, she's moving away. So I don't know if that's Liz Allen. But the other travesty here is that Michelle, who's been along, and she's pretty much been Michelle Gonzalez that I expected her to be from the comics, where she's kind of always kind of ribbing, but maybe thinks Peter is all right. But in the end, she says, oh, well, you, my friends call me MJ. Now let that sink in for a little minute, bit. MJ is supposed to be Mary Jane. You know, Mary Jane Watson. But now Michelle as MJ? She she has no personality similarities to Mary Jane whatsoever. and But it feels like they're going to put her in into, like, the MJ role instead of Mary Jane. I didn't like that either. So despite all the good things about this film, and I think you probably, you probably will enjoy it and you'll probably have a good time, it really wasn't a Spider-Man film to me. And I've, I've compared it to Man of Steel, where it's, you know, it's not a terrible movie, but it's just not Superman. It just didn't fit Superman. And to me, this just did not fit Spider-Man. So I was kind of disappointed. But it is enjoyable. It is funny. And I think you'll have a good time. And I guess it fits in with the MCU. But it just, it didn't live up to my expectations of what I want from a Spider-Man film. And so I, you know, I found myself towards the end feeling a little disheartened a little disappointed and it just didn't meet my expectations maybe if I watch it again and now that my expectations have been stripped away I might be able to enjoy it a second time more than I did the first time but I don't know it I just felt a little flat and I've, had, I've spent some time now on Facebook when people are like oh this was great and I'd, I would go ahead and voice my concern I feel almost like the way I've had to state my view I sound like I probably disliked it more than I liked it and I'm still, I'm, I'm that, that 50-50. I'm in the middle. There was plenty of stuff to enjoy, but there's plenty of stuff that just rubbed me the wrong way because it, it was just a disappointment because it just wasn't Spider-Man to me. So, but that is my review of Spider-Man Homecoming. And so, uh, take that with a grain of salt and view the few film yourself and uh, make up your own mind. Because, like I said, you'll probably enjoy it because I did have fun with it. And definitely stay till the very end of the credits because the funniest part is definitely at the end of the credits. Thank you for listening to the Neverland Podcast. We invite you back next week for more fun and adventure. Until then, remember to keep a pixie in your pocket. It's that young at heart, positive attitude that you can share with others. And remember to visit our website at NeverlandPodcast.com. There you can find links to our news page, our shop, our contact page, where you can easily send an email to podcast at NeverlandPodcast.com. You can also find our Neverlanders page, where you can find out how to become an official Lost Boy or Pixie, because girls are too clever to get lost. Become a real Neverlander! Please feel free to leave us a voicemail at 816-226-6492. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at NeverlandPCast. And like our Neverland Podcast fan page on Facebook. We also have a group on Facebook for you to join. We also appreciate your support to keep the Neverland Podcast up and running. Visit Patreon.com slash Neverland Podcast to donate to Keeping the Pixie Dust Alive. Copyright content featured on the Neverland Podcast is copyright of their respective creators and used under fair use license. All original content is copyright of Blue Band Productions and a very special thanks to Yeehaw Bob Jackson at yeehawbob.com for our new ending music. God bless! Yeah! Hello everybody, this is Yeehaw Bob Jackson. Neverland Podcast, we love you. Neverland Podcast, we love you. Neverland Podcast, it's true.